If only there was a science communication podcast with a bunch of Alan Alda Center alumni where they could come on and hone their skills in science <laughs> communication, right? We should start Somebody one. Somebody should do yeah. that. Um, we should start it. Yeah. Roll the music. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hi. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we have a White House Roundup, Medicinal Mollusks, and Pollen Proliferation. In the second half, we'll bring you my conversation with Dr. Nyla Kuhlman, a Parkinson's researcher at McGill University that is looking for new ways to communicate her work by incorporating dance. But first, the news. Normally, we talk about news concerning the work of other scientists. But I ask you, dear listener, what is the point of having a podcast that covers science news if we're not going to trumpet our own accomplishments? Steffi. Hi. You recently spoke at a reasonably prestigious location that was trying to increase its impact with the old Science Night bump. So why don't we talk about Dr. Dean's trip to Washington? Yep, that's right. I went to the White House. I can't, be- I can't believe it. It was amazing. I never thought fusion energy would end up in the White House so soon. Um, we've been working really, really hard over the past several decades, and you can go check our back catalog because we did the fusion news 2020 roundup. But I was there for a White House summit. Um, it was on developing a bold decadal vision for commercial fusion energy. It was organized by the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the Department of Energy event. They convened fusion energy leaders from government, industry, and academia, as well as other stakeholder groups. And this is to both show progress and make sure if we're going to commercialize fusion energy, we're doing it in an inclusive way. So we're including everyone on these early stages. Um, This is really building off all the advancements we've had recently on fusion energy. Also in the U.S., we had several strategic planning activities that kind of laid the groundwork for what we needed to do technology-wise to actually bring fusion energy to the grid. And then we had a National Academies report that kind of identified near-term goals to um, tackle in order to build and run a fusion pilot plant that was capable of generating electricity by the year 2040. I thought that was great. And it was an amazing timeline. Finally, I've been working all this time to actually bring clean energy from fusion to the world, but that wasn't fast enough for the Biden-Harris administration. So they really have this aggressive goal to reach net zero emissions by 2050 while increasing energy security and enhancing America's technological competitive edge. So this is really reflecting we need to take a broad approach to climate change. So this was accelerating the timeline, building that fusion pilot plant in a decade. And this was the the key event to start that process. So before I ask you a lot of questions, Steffi, about the process for getting into the White House, because that is really what I want to know about, I do want to ask you the important things. Like, that's not the important stuff. But the important (laughs) things are, what is the Biden-Harris administration doing to then bolster their vision, right? What are they doing to fund their vision? What, you know, what what can we expect uh, to come from this? That is a great question. So a lot of people who are funded, right, by federal dollars to do research, it takes time to get policy through. So that was kind of clear from the start. This was like a kickoff event, and there would be subsequent further events to kind of refine the approach. Um, And then along with that would come funding. What they did announce at the event was they released a funding opportunity announcement, or we call it an FOA, um, how you apply for money to do research, that uh, started looking at what kind of teams you can form 
to do design studies for a fusion pilot plant. So that was announced that day of the event. They also announced, and this is super exciting, so all of our research is done in the Office of Science for Fusion Energy Sciences, which means we work on the science of fusion, okay? Um, But if you want to do things that are more application-wise or leading towards commercial energy, you may have to work in different agencies in the federal government. So that's the other announcement, the second announcement that DOE is launching an agency-wide initiative, and they're going to start coordinating across program offices to develop this decadal strategy to accelerate um, commercial fusion energy in partnership with the private sector. And that's important because that's one of the strengths in the U.S. We have a lot of public-private partnerships and kind of growing that area is important. They announced that this initiative, cross-departmental initiative, will be led by a new DOE lead fusion coordinator that's going to be reporting to the Undersecretary for Science and Innovation. That's important because now we have a senior advisor and a lead fusion coordinator that can start working across DOE offices. So this is an establishment for the first time in the Department of Energy of an actual lead for fusion. Is this what I'm understanding? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Commercial. I mean, we've had it in the fusion energy sciences, but now this is leading more towards that energy mission. Right. We've all said how exciting this is. I'm going to say it too. This is all super, super exciting. And... I tuned in because I wanted to watch my dear, dear friend talk about the things that she's doing. But the big takeaway I've, I got from watching the live stream, and I was anticipating to, you know, like, check in from time to time, watch Steffi, keep checking in. I watched the entire thing in big chunks throughout the day. I was really happy to see how excited everybody was. Everybody in there was so excited and positive, and I came away knowing that this was going to happen eventually. Not like, oh, this might happen, but now it's going to happen. So if you're on the fence, watch this live stream. We'll link to it on the website for this. And you tell me that you're still on the fence after watching the entire thing. It was really positive. Yeah, I, I was so excited to be there, especially because I talked about that strategic planning that our community did, and then the National Academy's report talking about what we needed to do next, um, experimental-wise, which comes with a price tag, right? And then there was kind of silence. There's We didn't know what was happening because we did all this work and everyone's like, this is great. And then nothing happened. And then I got in my inbox an email that was like, from the White House. And I was like, (laughs) oh, something is happening. I'm going to the White House. All right. Let's talk about that, right? So let's talk about how that day happened, right? How did did your day proceed? So you wake up, you find yourself in Washington, D.C. at a hotel, I'm assuming. Yeah, Um, yeah. You wake up in the morning, you're like, today's the day I'm going to the White House. Yeah. And then what? And then I met my friend for coffee so I could calm down (laughs) because I was pretty nervous. So what they don't tell you, some of these events, when they say, we are at the White House, it's sometimes the White House complex, which you're in the whole complex of the White House. And we were at the Eisenhower Executive Office building from the White House complex across. So you have to, of, of course, like in advance, give all your information so they can do security clearance. And then you have to go through checkpoints to get into the building to get through. Yeah. And then everyone was so nice. There were people from the Office of Science and Technology personally thanking us for being there. And I'm like, huh, I'm just, I'm just so happy to talk about what I'm so passionate about and how it can change the world and, and bring clean energy to everyone in an equitable and just way. And I really liked how that's kind of why I got into fusion was fusion is for everyone and we need everyone's input. And that was an overall theme of this too. Clean energy without causing harm and bringing communities in from the start. As you were talking, I was thinking about your conversation with Dr. Deviani Singh from a couple weeks ago. And... It was like I was getting to watch a preview of what you were going to say while you were doing that conversation because there was a lot of talking points that the two of you were going over. So that's exciting. And 
I can't help but think back to our. Fa- I, I gotta, I gotta plug all our stuff, right? You were at the <laughs> White House. We gotta jump on this. But I can't help but think back to our our hit special, the Festival of Fusion, twenty twenty one. That this all goes back to relationship management and having the entire team come together with the help of moderation. So see what can happen when you just all play nicely and have have yeah. a unified vision. You get to go to the White House. Amazing, and you get support from the government too that's like yes you've done all this great research we're gonna back you up and you're like yeah we can do it so you talked about this being an ongoing process now that there's a lead fusion coordinator at the white house level what can we expect the timeline to look at as far as updates well, there were some closed sessions, too, where we talked about science and te- technology and kind of other aspects of what we need to do to get on this path towards rapid development of fusion energy. So I think there's going to be a follow-up report with kind of summarizing everything that happened that day and probably follow-on meetings to kind of flesh out all those details and then how you work with policymakers, funding agencies, and regulators, too, and communities, because we need to understand what communities want from their energy source and what concerns that they have and bring them in early to kind of get um, input from them, which can inform our research. And also we need to begin the social license process too. So social acceptance. What the timeline looks at, like, I, I can't tell you right now because I think everyone's still processing it and figuring that out. I'm trying to be an objective interviewer here, but I just, I'm just so excited that you got to do this and yeah. so happy for you. Can I thank Alan Alda right here for this? Always. I would, yeah, bring him, bring him out. <laughs> Cause I, I don't think I would have ended up there without him. I wouldn't be this great, com- this communicator that I, I wouldn't have these. Let me restart. <laughs> no, no, no. You can say you wouldn't be a great communicator because yeah. I saw you when you first yeah. started and you are not where you were when you first started. No, it's true. I was going through some rough stuff right then with work and, and it was a rough environment to navigate. And I was almost thinking about quitting Fusion. That workshop was really transformative and kind of helped me gain confidence interact with the public, be a better researcher because I'm engaging with the public and getting inspiration from them. I wouldn't be there without him. So thank you, Alan Alda. You know, as you know, Steffi, I was at the same workshop you were at and um, you and I made friends with several of the people who were in our cohort. But there are very few people who are actually doing any science communication actively. Um, It's awesome that they've been trained on how to do it and maybe they're doing it on a very local level, but certainly not with the broad reaching um, sort of approach that you are. And um, it's awesome. It's really awesome to see. All right. Let's talk about cone snails. Good segue. Yeah. I can not think of any, how are we going to move? How are we going to, we can't do like a, a seamless pitch that links Steffi's time in the white house to venom without getting really partisan about it. Oh, the white house event was bipartisan. That's the other thing. Unlike this snail. It's easy to look at the development of pharmaceuticals and only get to see the end process. And that's the stage that gets covered on the news. When human trials show promise and endless red tape hold up the next wonder drug. I've always felt a better place to start is the beginning, just like Tolkien said. For instance, let's look at the humble cone snail. These creatures use a variety of hunting methods with the common goal of incapacitating unwary fish with a naturally produced chemical agent and proceeding to eat it. So we're into a little bit of the weird science part of the Science Night podcast. A team led by Iris Ramiro, a PhD student at the University of Copenhagen, is looking at at how the strategy of a particular species of cone snail and the chemical compound that it produces may lead to new options in pain management. So let's let's talk about cone snails and how they eat fish cuz it's pretty exciting. I was really impressed with the different ways that these snails can like kill their prey, right? I mean, they could lance it and impart venom that way, and that's like an immediate thing, right? Like kill your prey. The taser and tether strategy. Right, exactly. Taser and yeah. tether, which is horrifying to think about, right? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, swimming along in the reef and get lanced yeah. like that. But that's not the only way. That seems like the worst way. Actually, that seems very similar to the horror stories you hear about people swimming with large 
manta rays and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there's this idea that they can just spew out venom into the water like a big cloudy haze and wait for their prey to wander through. Ambush and assess. To me, that's preferable. Like, I would much rather be wandering around and suddenly be like, oh, there's something that's making me feel weird. I'm just going to walk around in circles for a few minutes and sit down. All of a sudden, you start smelling burning toast. It, it kind of just reminds me of college. <laughs> but then... There's the strategy that these cone snails take, right? That these particular cone snails take. And that is, they shoot out their venom, but it's slow acting. They wait for their prey to just kind of fall to the floor. And then they go and they pick it up and drag it back, right? The strategies that they impart and how it kind of suits their environment was really a really interesting thing to see. The most interesting thing to all of us was fish getting stabbed and eaten by snails. But the actual paper... (laughs) was about the chemical compounds that are found in the snail that waits for the slow-acting toxin to to work on the snail. So they had to get them back to the lab alive and test this compound. And that's just like an interesting story. So the idea of getting this venom back into the lab to study was that uh, they wanted to know sort of what was in it and what sort of applications might might come from the use of this. And so I guess... The idea here is that they could develop, potentially develop painkillers from this venom, which is very interesting. We have problems with effective painkillers because they're highly addictive. And so another painkiller that might not be addictive, although I don't know that we have any evidence that it isn't, I suspect it's pretty hard to get addicted to something that is a toxin like that, like a a venom, right? I mean, but maybe not. Maybe in small doses, it's okay. And so I you know I wonder what I wonder what that sort of is going to what's going to bear out from that. So they had been looking at cone snail venom as a candidate for a painkiller for a long time according to this article. But the other snails that employ quicker acting strategies, they were finding that the body just metabolized it too quick for it to be effective. So it had the potential to to block pain it just didn't last long enough in the human body. But they're thinking because this is slow acting because this is the release and wait That's the new term I've coined. There's the potential that this could actually provide a couple hours of pain relief, which is exciting too. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I didn't know all the ways that these cone snails could stop their prey. So that was pretty fascinating. And then using it to study how they capture their prey and sting their prey, and then choosing the, the, the ambush and assess method because that shows the best promise because it's the slow acting one. So you're actually watching these snails in their environment to give you clues on how the individual peptides might be useful for use in humans. It's all super fascinating how they just looking at the process, you know, you have researchers looking at cone snails, probably watching YouTube videos of cone snails stabbing fish and eating them for fun. And then thinking like, huh, I bet we could use this as a pain reliever. Like, I, I would never make that that leap. So it's amazing that we have people that can make that leap working on these problems. I didn't know how fast snails were either. Oh, my gosh. The cartoons and literature made me think they were slow. Yeah. I've been lied to my whole life. Right. I mean, you hear about a snail's pace all the time, right? These are like nine-inch snails. It sounds like, that sounds like a band from the 90s. <laughs> We've totally buried the lead here. They're injecting... Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, I can't stop, stop thinking about nine-inch snails. <laughs> I was over it until you said it again. Trent Razor Clam. I was going to say the same thing. Oh, man, you beat me to it. <laughs> Everyone's eyes are watering from all the fun we're having. It's like pollen season is upon us. Well, if you're like me and live in the northern part of the northern hemisphere, the arrival of spring brings with it the promise of longer, warmer, brighter days, and of course, a fine coating of pollen that covers everything in a greenish-yellow haze. And according to a new article published in the journal Nature Communications, written by Dr. Allison Steiner of the University of Michigan, that haze could arrive up to 40 days sooner and increase by as much as 250% due to climate change, which would cause all kinds of issues with allergy sufferers and people just washing crap off of their cars. So what do we think about the proliferation of pollen in our lifetime? 
I think there are so many things that are interconnected to our climate. There's a lot going on that we are unfortunately going to see in the near term. And this is one of them. It's become like a common theme on this podcast to report the different ways in which climate change is going to be affecting our lives in the near term. That is already happening. Not even talking about the long-term effects that we're rapidly approaching a like no-turn-back point to. One of us on this podcast is trying to fix that. The other two of us are going to ride those coattails as far as we can go. You raised an interesting point here, James, and that is that we do talk a lot about the effects of climate change on our lives. But I got to tell you, this one feels particularly personal, like a personal attack on me as someone who suffers a lot from seasonal allergies, right? I mean, this is going to affect my ability to record this podcast. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. We're going to have to find like a clean room. Is there an IBM plant near you? (laughs) I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't get out of my house much right now because uh, we're about to enter the pollening. (laughs) And and so I try to stay inside my fortress. Well, yeah, it's not just you. It's it can be a great economic loss due to, like you said, missed work, school days. If, If children aren't able to go to school, that can set them back. Medical expenses, too, possibly early deaths from this, all because global warming leads to pollen season kind of starting earlier because historically different tree pollen varieties, they had timing varied um, when they were actually releasing the pollen. But now that we're having have this increased warming, those seasons, those times that uh, the different tree pollen um, comes out is going to overlap with each other. That's why we see that huge increase. That was the one part of the story that I didn't quite make, didn't make sense to me is how that overlap was going to happen. If we have an earlier pollening, right, an earlier pollen season, you would think that the earliest pollinators would be the ones that would start pollinating first and that it would still follow a similar trajectory because that pollen is uh, being released in response to both temperatures but also the angle of the sun. And so I'm wondering if that was the aspect of it that was sort of left out of the story was that the angle of the sun's rays relative to the plant's I mean, that's sort of what leads to um, changing leaves, changing leaf color in the fall. It's not a temperature issue. It's the breakdown of chlorophyll in those leaves as a result of changes in the angles of the sun's rays. And so I'm wondering if that's the part that was left out of the story is that, yeah, we have higher temperatures and so we're going to have an earlier spring. So therefore, plants are going to be ready to pollinate earlier. But because the angle of the sun's rays aren't quite where they need to be, it doesn't sort of keep that setup the same. So you don't have the uh, earliest pollinators sure. going and then the next, like it's as soon as those rays are angled properly, everyone's ready to go. Well, I wonder if it has something to do with the frost-free days. Because like, like I live in Wisconsin and so we're having these weird cycles where it will get un- well, what we used to think is unseasonably warm for like a week and then go back into, it will be in the like 50s and 60s and now we're in the 20s this week. And what that means is what I've seen is our tulips, like our lot of bulbs will will start growing because they have the you know few days of frost-free days and now they're dying. So I wonder if that kind of those cycles that are not historically we're used to are impacting that. Well, next you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Nyla Kuhlman, but first we'll have a message from another podcast that I think you will enjoy. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like... Really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. We are back, and I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Nyla Kuhlman, a postdoctoral researcher at McGill University's School of Physical and Occupational Therapy. 
where she researches Parkinson's disease and dementia. But that's not all. She's also the co-founder of the Green Labs Initiative at the Neuro in Montreal, which focuses on addressing environmental and financial waste. And one more thing, she's also one of the hosts of the A-Minder podcast, which summarizes the latest publications in Alzheimer's disease. And I'm sure we're going to learn about so much more. Nyla, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for that lovely introduction, James. You know, it's always the hardest part where I have to stare my interview subject, we'll call you a subject, in the face and tell you all the great things you do and watch them shrink and want to be anywhere else in the world. But yeah, it's important that we get all this information out. It's a little awkward, but it's also a nice little boost in the morning before I go on with my day. So if I can be that bright spot in the morning, then I will gladly take up that mantle. So I want to start off with one of those questions that seems super easy until we start to overthink it a little bit too much. Which I always do. Yeah, exactly. So so tell us about what you do. Right. So good question. What I do in the context of my postdoc is I explore how we can use the performing arts to bridge the gap between scientific research and community. So in particular, I'm concerned by the lack of communication between scientists, especially lab-based scientists, but also clinical researchers and people affected by neurological diseases. And my focus has been on neurodegenerative diseases, so Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, dementia more generally, and trying to find ways that the performing arts can create a link between scientific research and lived experience. That is really interesting. So I think maybe it's worth quickly kind of and I know this is a whole PhD level topic on its own, but maybe we can quickly define maybe the differences of something like dementia and just general forgetfulness. Because I think maybe there is a popular misunderstanding between those two things. Right. So firstly, I'll say that dementia refers to a condition that can be present in a number of different diseases. So it in itself is not a a disease. Um, It could be vascular dementia, it can be Alzheimer's, it can also present in Parkinson's. And it is severe cognitive decline. So there are different measures that, you know, I'm not going to get into them, they're boring, but there are different ways of assessing uh, cognitive impairment. And it ranges from, you know, general forgetfulness or the occasional, you know, I don't know where I put my keys to uh, subjective cognitive decline, which is when you really feel that, you know, things are changing and that you have cognitive impairment, not just in forgetfulness. And then mild cognitive impairment is also something that is diagnosed, let's say, which is a step less than dementia, which is more severe and touches on more than just memory loss. Does that, is that a clear breakdown? That is a very clear breakdown. Thank you so much. Because, you know, I am called an anatomist. And I can tell people lots of stuff about different parts of the body until we get to the base of the skull. And then it's just, it's, it's there. And I know it's there. And I definitely don't hide in my office during neuroanatomy days uh, in, in hopes that I can avoid any questions that I do not know the answer to. That's definitely something that I don't <laughs> No, do. no, no, no. I don't have any experience <laughs> in that either. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked basically a little bit about what dementia is, and your work is, is integrating uh, arts into the, do we want to say treatment? Is that a fair assessment? Or the management? Actually, neither. So that's um, a clarification I want to make early in my res- in talking about my research, that it isn't about therapy so much as it is about increasing the communication again between academic circles and non-academic community and about knowledge translation. So this idea of taking all of the work we're doing in labs and in clinical settings and making sure that it is communicated in meaningful ways, but also applied 
in meaningful ways that can help quality of life of people with dementia or Parkinson's. I will say there's a lot of work on using the arts for therapy and for disease management. And it's incredible work being done, which I I can speak to a little bit, but it's not what I'm doing myself. Let's focus on what specifically you're doing, because we are a science communication podcast, and we love new ways of communicating the work and finding ways to to make it stick, or at least make it a little bit demystified. And maybe I'll be furiously taking notes so I can come up with ways to do that myself. We'll have an interpretive little dance at the end, so it'll really stick. (laughs) I think I'll start with a bit of background here. Um, My previous life as a PhD was uh, in the lab, as I mentioned, or perhaps I didn't, but I mentioned it to you earlier. I studied the neurobiology of Parkinson's disease, so I was looking down a microscope every day Uh, I was working on a mouse model of Parkinson's and really getting down to the neuronal level, which means that I, I was spending so much time in front of a microscope that I hardly ever communicated with people who have Parkinson's. And, you know, I would write in each grant application that we were working on treating or preventing Parkinson's, but I never had the conversation or very rarely had a let's say, a two-way exchange with people living with Parkinson's and learning about their lived experience and their priorities for research. So when I came out of my PhD, on the side I was dabbling in, not dabbling, I was quite into dance and uh, circus and really interested in art-science collaborations and how movement and music can be used to represent really complex scientific information in a more intuitive and captivating way. So that brought me first to art-science collaborations, but then at the same time I also realized that the arts can bring in emotion in a way that um, a scientific article can't. So there was this nice sort of union between the social and emotional and subjective aspects of an illness and then the signaling cascades and molecular mechanisms happening in the brain and I was interested in how we could bring those together on stage. All that to say that the arts I think are a really interesting non-traditional way of doing science communication and of finding this connection between people's everyday experiences and uh, what we're doing in a lab, which is often so inaccessible to. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that at least me as a Science Night host, which is a pretty lofty position, but one of the things that I've been trying to do lately is break down that wall between science and art. Because In a world where scientists need to get better at communicating their work, we need all of the skills that we could possibly bring to the table to do that. And I think finding something that can convey an abstract thought in a visual manner is really powerful and also it's a lot of fun too, right? It is. And honestly, I could wax poetic about how useful metaphor and symbolism and finding ways, as you said, to to bring scientific information into a visual form. Not only how useful it is for science communication, but also how much new perspective it can give a scientist or you as a scientist on your work and open up new questions in your research. So yeah, I'm really pleased to see that the sci art movement is picking up and that you are also at the forefront of it. (laughs) So it it has these other benefits that we don't even think about until we're like staging these productions of we're giving artists an opportunity to express themselves in a new way, which is always interesting. And we're giving scientists the opportunity to be multidimensional if they can also produce art. I'll take this opportunity to link it back to my project. So in my postdoc, the project is called Peace of Mind, P-I-E-C-E, 
for that um, just as a note. So Peace of Mind actually brought together neuroscientists, uh, performing artists and musicians, and then people with Parkinson's disease or dementia, as well as caregivers. And so we worked all together to co-create performances that spoke to the lived experience and scientific research of these diseases. And the reason I, I wanted to connect it to what you said there is that so many people on the project were and I mean, people in general are multifaceted, but we had scientists on the projects who, who on the project who were also creating the music, and we had artists on the project who were also really interested in the science, and um, people with lived experience who were contributing poetry or music. So it was really blending and blurring all of the lines between these, you know, these assigned roles that people had on the project and. There's a lot that happens at that interface. So let's dig into that project specifically, because I'm always interested in what goes into the creation of some of these more elaborate science communication efforts. You know, I'm just talking into a mic and making little clicky clickies, and all of a sudden I have science communication to give to the world. There's a lot more going into the peace of mind project that you're talking about. So can you kind of walk us through the process from coordinating this at the beginning to the point where you're actually producing something? Yeah, it would be my pleasure. So I'll say that it took from the first idea to the final, and I wouldn't even say it's a final product. We're still working with iterations. took a good three years. So back in 2018, myself and some friends started Peace of Mind just as a way to explore how we could connect neuroscience with music and dance. And that was like a, you know, we were doing this on the side in a friend's little studio um, meeting on weekends on our own time. And I realized that if we wanted to push the project further, it needed funding and it needed me to be fully dedicated to it. So I want to say that I was incredibly fortunate to find a supervisor, um, Dr. Stephanie Blaine Marias, who was willing to take on this really left field project. Um, her work focuses more on disorders of consciousness and she does some work with dementia as well. I was really lucky to find someone who would take me on for this project and then to get funding through a knowledge translation or implementation science grant. So that turned it into an official postdoc project and allowed me to pay everyone involved, which was really important just in terms of especially um, equalizing artists, scientists and community members, making sure that everyone was uh, getting the same thing out of it in terms of um, financial compensation and in terms of enjoyment as well. The way the project took form is that in the context of COVID-19, everyone's favorite topic, everything was moved online, which was, you know, the initial intent was to bring people together in the same room and to dance together and make music together and see what, um, what could come out of really pushing people outside of their comfort zones and finding this new common ground through creativity. We had to adapt that to Zoom, which brought about a lot of constraints, but also a lot of affordances, like a lot of new ways to create and get creative. Between, let's, I think it was October 2020. Yeah. So a year and a half ago around, we started with these Zoom sessions where we had neuroscientists, performing artists, and people with dementia or Parkinson's in, in two separate projects. And we used music and dance workshops as a way to all bond over Zoom and push outside of our comfort zone for sure. And we also used it to create little art science videos. So we took scientific concepts um, from Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's research and found ways to represent them through dance, music, theater, and circus. So that was a way of bringing the science to our community members. And then over this process of Zoom meetings, uh, we, we had sort of both the, the dance and music workshops, but then also focused discussions on uh, the lived experience of these conditions, what we wanted to 
communicate in our performance? Like what were the key messages that we wanted to get out to a lay public or a general audience and how we could do so using all of the different arts we had on the team. So we had acrobats, musicians, dancers, different styles of dance, uh, lots of different things to work with. A couple things I want to I wanna definitely give you some praise for doing is, A, just creating this new way of thinking about science communication because, you know, what you just described was a lot of work. And I'm sure you only described a portion of the work that went into this. And a lot of times that's enough to kind of make people shy <laughs> away from that. But I also like the idea that you are not having the artists that are participating kind of being out on the island and, you know, they get the marching orders, they do the thing, and yeah, they're not yeah. really involved in the process. Because I think, I think that's part of it, right, is, is actually involving the arts in the science. Yes, definitely. And I appreciate the praise, but I want to highlight that this project really came together from everyone's involvement. And that was the beauty of it was that it was participatory. Like it wasn't just the scientists saying, here's some data, go and do your art thing. And likewise, like the people with lived experience were also really involved. So the whole point was to to use this for knowledge exchange and also to create empathy or understanding between these different communities. And for me, it was a really big transition, obviously, from working in a lab where I have not complete control, but a lot of control over the the experimental variables to working with humans and to taking this really emergent participatory approach where we have some end goals in sight, but the idea is to integrate everyone's voice and to have it be a collaborative work. So I was constantly trying to sort of guide the ship in one direction, but make sure that everyone had their input and that the work really came from again, this meeting of everyone and all of these different perspectives and, and disciplines. So you stated, you know, because of the pandemic, this had to be something that occurred online. Yeah. Hopefully, I don't want to say this and then have everything change all of a sudden, but it seems like we're potentially getting to the end of that time. Fingers Maybe. crossed, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, I've said those words before and yeah. I've been proven wrong. But is there an idea that we can move uh, this project outside of the online sphere and maybe have something that is closer to the original uh, idea? I'll give you part two of where that project went. We started a lot of the content creation for the performances on Zoom, like a lot of virtual collaborations. The, the benefit, again, of using Zoom was that we could record everything. So we have uh, a lot of audio clips and material to work with. And then when we had a little brief moment of COVID no longer being a thing in, um, last summer, we had the artists and some of the researchers and essentially the production team meet for a month-long residency. So in a dance studio, we took everything that we had created over Zoom, and um, we had two artistic directors, uh, Jeremy for the Parkinson's project and Jennifer for the uh, Dementia project, and they really brought everything we'd done on Zoom together into a full story. So that's where we created two performances. They're both around 45 minutes in length. And then again, adjusting to the pandemic, we ended up, instead of presenting them live, we decided to film them, which gave a whole new angle because now we were, instead of working with a live performance, we were working with uh, integrating film into just this new artistic dimension as well. So those performances are now up on YouTube. And so they're available to watch for free online. They're bilingual and they have subtitles. And we also created a lot of supplementary materials, so little vignettes that explain aspects of the project, um, some links to more scientific research, descriptions of each scene, and so on. So that's where we left off, and now actually we have a live performance um, scheduled with a great science communication group here called uh, Coeur des Sciences. So it's a French group, and they've invited us to present the Parkinson's piece in April. So that's what we're gearing up towards. 
That is incredible. And dear listener, you know that we are going to give you links to everything that we just talked about on our website. So be sure to check that out. Do you have a date, an actual date, so we can... Yeah, so our performance is on April 7th. Um, if there are any listeners in Montreal, I encourage you to check out Cœur des Sciences at ICAM, uh, and you can come to our show. Perfect. What were some of the things that you learned when working with the dementia patients in this project? Was there kind of some new skills that you gained when having to actually come in contact with this population uh, outside of the lab setting and more of like a lived experience? I should say that I didn't have much experience with dementia before. I was working on Parkinson's and I also don't have any family experience with dementia. So it was really new for me. I was really inspired by a project out of the University of Toronto called Cracked, A New Light on Dementia, which is a research-based theatre on the experience of dementia. And so I had watched that before and gotten some idea and also read the articles around it about how important it is to use art and creativity as a way to communicate with people with dementia. So we rely so much on verbal communication and on memory and on facts, uh, which are no longer accessible in the same way for someone with dementia. But there are all of these creative ways that we can connect with people with dementia. And actually, the reason that I was drawn to Stephanie, my supervisor, is because she has um, she created a device called Biomusic, which takes physiological signals, it records uh, different physiological signals and turns it into music in real time. And so that was sort of a way of uh, connecting caregivers or family members with people who can't communicate verbally anymore. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. What I learned, our group was quite small. We had three people with dementia, two of them quite early on, and then one had fairly late stage dementia. And then we had their family members with them, so two partners and one daughter. And, I mean, working with Zoom and, you know, this, we had an hour and a half format, which is a really long time for anyone to be paying attention on Zoom, let alone someone with dementia. So we really, as we were going through this project, had to adapt to the feedback of our participants and change our format to make it more accessible for them and more fun for them and really focus on using dance and music and less on just the, the discussion, which was more for the caregivers afterwards. I, I'm not sure that answered your question, not in a succinct way, but let me give you no, the, the brief it version. It absolutely does, because yeah. it, also, it also harkens back to the thing that we all had to do during the 2020 year of pandemic is figure out a way to make Zoom an effective way to convey what we're talking about, not just in science, yes, yeah, not just in dementia research, but just in general, you know, all of a sudden Zoom classes were a thing. And yeah. It's just a different way of learning. Yeah, it's very different. And actually more so in the Parkinson's project. At first, it felt like a big challenge to all be... And actually, I guess what I hadn't considered at first for Parkinson's, it's a in part a movement disorder. So it really affects, you know, your movement. And to put all of these people with Parkinson's on the screen where they can also see their own little square and then they see themselves beside a circus performer who is doing handstands and really fluid movement, I think was really jarring at first. The first Zoom session we had was a bit uncomfortable in that sense. But then, you know, we had a really great dance facilitator, Rebecca Barnstaple, and she used Zoom in such a creative way. Like we would all be up against the camera with our eyes or like with a hand doing funny things. <laughs> and we just completely lost track of who was a researcher, who was someone with Parkinson's, who was a circus acrobat. And we sort of all met as humans because we were all just these little squares on the screen. So it was a really great equalizer, actually. I want to shift a little bit. I so enjoyed talking about your work and I could definitely do that all day, but I want to I want to cover the full picture, right? That's that's what we're trying to do here. And I want to talk about the A Minder podcast because it is such a great idea. If you're not a listener already, uh you should be. 
if you're interested at all in dementia research, in neurodegenerative disease, in Alzheimer's, in that umbrella, you should be listening to it. So tell me about what Aminder is and how it came to be. Right. So Aminder is a month in neurodegenerative disease research. It is a podcast that started out in the early days of the pandemic, actually. So Sarah Luedi and Ellen Kosh and then Ellen Rowe uh, were sort of the first the first three students at the time who had been talking about this podcast and how nice it would be to have a literature review of Alzheimer's disease research in audio form. So before I get into the background, I should say A Minder is a podcast in which we summarize the latest uh, Alzheimer's and dementia research in audio form. So what we do every month is we go through all of the new peer-reviewed research articles on PubMed, Uh, We download the abstracts and then we make summaries based on those, which means that we cover a lot of breadth. Uh, We don't go into any depth of the articles. We don't give like a critical analysis. We're just giving an overview of the field. When we first started in 2020, we had a very lofty goal of covering Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, ALS, Alzheimer's every month and every topic related to those And I'm sure, I mean, you are a seasoned, now a seasoned podcast host, you know how much work it is. Um, We at the time didn't know how much work it was. And we also didn't know how much uh, research is published every month until we started going through it. Right. So in the summer of 2020, we started, you know, figuring out how to download all of these articles, how to sort them, what kind of categories we wanted to create. Like, you know, we talk about disease mechanisms, about treatments, about prevention of Alzheimer's, risk factors of dementia, and so on. So we kind of figured out how to categorize them. And now with the team that we have, we're delivering around around 10, it varies, but around 10 episodes a month on these different topics related to dementia and Alzheimer's. So just for the average listener who doesn't realize how impressive the words that Nyla just said are, I am a podcaster that puts a good amount of effort into my work. And I will tell you that the amount of work is so different between what what Nyla just described and what I do, because there's a lot more research involved. I can be a professional idiot on the internet, (laughs) and it's really great, but I don't have to do a ton of back-end research, other than for the news segments, what we read a lot about. It seems like a lot of work. So not just the production of a podcast, but also all of that research. Are there ways that you have found to... by the way, I love the idea that you started with this this lofty goal and then like immediately cut that into uh, a very manageable thing. That's if you're thinking about how do I become a podcaster, that's step one is like shooting for the stars, realizing that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But what are some of the ways that you have found to effectively make this podcast now that you're a little bit into it? Yeah, I think. I really want to give a shout out to um, Sarah, Ellen, both Ellens, uh, also Anusha, my lab mate, who was also part of Peace of Mind, and the whole team, because there was a lot of work, uh, James as well for sorting. Anyway, there was a lot of work that went into figuring out how to streamline our process. We have a huge Slack group with a big team, people who are either sorting the abstracts or summarizing, creating scripts, reviewing those scripts, hosting the episodes, editing the audio, and then also creating the bibliographies to accompany each episode, and then doing all of the social media. So I I don't know really how kept it running. It really has been a group effort and uh, so many volunteers coming together to do this. Organization has been key, streamlining, really getting a consistent process and scheduling. I I mean, this is now I'm just exchanging like podcast uh, tips with you. Maybe not so interesting for the listener. We've switched. We've switched to podcast talk. Well, and I think I think it is important for people to know too. Like, I don't want to make it seem like we are doing something 
crazy and new and innovative in the realm of podcasting, but I think maybe the average per- – and maybe this is a way for me to be like, hey, the person listening to this is yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. But you go into it and you think like, I'm just going to talk into a mic, I'm going to post that, and I'm going to get a bunch of, of free Casper mattresses. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah, the hours I've spent like setting up this makeshift – pop filter and real and you know i tried once recording with a mask because i thought it might work as a pop filter <laughs> and it just it, that was the height of the pandemic days and just the realizing how silly i sound or how i can't articulate and and i i think it's worth mentioning that our podcasts are very different that you get as you said you get to be an idiot on air but no you get to you get to um talk about science maybe in a more i guess a light way or, or a way that connects more to more listeners, whereas our podcast is dense and probably boring for someone who isn't yeah. like really immersed in Alzheimer's research and dementia research. So that was also a big learning curve. Like, how can we make this podcast accessible? How can we go from an abstract that is full of jargon and full of acronyms to something that is decent to listen to and <laughs> and uh that doesn't lose our listener halfway through and that's why i started with the caveat of if you are involved or interested in this this is the podcast yes. to you. <laughs> it is more dense than your standard to the public science communication podcast but i do want to give some accolades to you and the entire team that you could have made this a lot more dense and a lot more jargon filled and you know maybe you would have still been able to convey your message to the target audience that way. But man, you're just, you're never going to get new people in, interested into what you're talking about if you go down that like strictly hard science road. So I think you've, your, your group has really threaded the needle. Um, so I will give you the praise and you can pass it on. I'll to pass the rest it on. Thank monitor. you. Yeah. <laughs> and also, what we were talking about before the recording started is if there are other groups in other disciplines and other professional organizations that are looking for ways to innovate and reach out to your uh, field and your science, this is a great way to do it. Why is this not happening all over the place? I know the answer is there's so much work on the back end, but still, this is a great idea. You know, you were talking earlier before we started recording about picking up from people who are trained in science communication and giving them an opportunity through this podcast. I think similarly for a minder, it is such a great learning opportunity for students, uh, for researchers to know how to summarize literature, to get an overview of the field. Like we're the first people who read all of these abstracts every month, um, that it is a really great training opportunity. And if it was integrated into university program in some way, we would be killing two birds with one stone and making the process so much easier for everyone else. You know, it is in part a science communication podcast, but it's also largely like a knowledge dissemination tool for researchers. Yeah. And also, it's kind of a proof of concept, right? You're, you're, you know, you're testing your hypothesis of, is this something that would be helpful to the field? And then you got the numbers to show that it is, or, you know, ways to show that once we figured it out, uh, we got to that point. So that's really great. So obviously, again, we're going to link to the A Minder podcast on this feed. So make sure you check it out if it's something you're interested in. Or, you know, just go and listen to an episode and, and boost the numbers a little bit. That's, 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 <laughs> that's what yes, I That's also mind. welcomed. And hopefully you'll still learn something in the process. We talked a lot about what you do, and it is a lot. You are a very busy person. And I want to talk about some of the things that maybe you do to avoid burnout, which <laughs> is got to be creeping right around the corner for everybody, yeah. right? Yeah. What do you do in your downtime to kind of de-stress and pull you away from science uh, in, in a way that helps? I climb walls. <laughs> That's the, the way that I escape those those sinking moments. I was joking with a friend that I'm becoming very familiar with my sine wave of uh, of energy and motivation and recognizing, I think, more so throughout the pandemic and through, you know, working from home and spending so much time on the screen that 
my motivation really waxes and wanes and that burnout is real like I mean I knew that but I think there's more open conversation around it and at least in my academic circles I do a lot of uh, bouldering I mean you might have guessed I like embodied cognition and you know I was talking about dance as a way to communicate I really love problem solving with my body so that's I find bouldering a really satisfying way to to get my mind off work and I found that working with friends you know I I mean I have the luxury of doing this at my house but that's really helped like just having some social contact without needing to fully socialize um, and having someone hold you responsible in a way for getting work done. That is a great way to de-stress because, you know, if you listen to previous podcasts, we talked about somebody who does some research in stress and she, she said about how if you can be active in some way. It is so good for your body. So you're funneling that nervous energy into something that is also beneficial to you rather than what I do, which is, you know, uh, eat and drink lots of coffee. But (laughs) two options. There's also like a threshold. You know, sometimes I find that going out and climbing or dancing or whatever is a stress relief or a release. But sometimes when I'm so stressed, I can't even, it feels like it's just going to add to the anxiety of not getting things done. And then I don't know what I do in those moments. Also eat and drink coffee, I think. Yeah. You know, and that's a different conversation that the world should have about the need to be productive at all times, that maybe we would be better off as a species if we could maybe not think about things. For sure. But you know, we're there now and that's yeah. that's where we're at. So yeah, that, like I said, different conversation. <laughs> different conversation, but I will push my agenda of more, the more creativity you can integrate in your life, the better. Just being more playful. I think that's been sort of my, my focus and where I found myself with this postdoc, you know, I, I want to say for grad students out there, if you're listening, like a PhD is such a harrowing process of tunneling in on one subject for so long and for me it was a realization that I can't like I'm not interested in just focusing on one problem forever or what feels like forever and um, connecting different disciplines and different problems in a creative way has has been really helpful for me. (laughs) That is such great advice for everybody everybody out there that is figuring out what their career is going to be in science and also for those that maybe think that something's wrong with them for having those feelings too. Uh, it's an important thing to get out there. Nyla, I have loved talking to you and I could talk to you for the rest of the day, but I know that you got so many more important things to do. So the last thing I'm going to ask you is how can we follow you? How can we support what you're doing? I just want to say thank you, James. It's been a really great conversation and I also know you have a lot of audio to edit now, so so good luck with that. <laughs> so in terms of finding me, yeah, you can follow Peace of Mind. So again, that's P-I-E-C-E. Uh, kudos to Anusha for that clever title. Peace of Mind is on Facebook, to some extent on Instagram, but in terms of our content, it's mostly on YouTube. So Peace of Mind Collective And uh, we mentioned the Green Labs initiative at the Neuro, which has expanded across uh, McGill campus. And then also, of course, a Minder podcast. You can find us on several platforms. And we will have links to all that on our website. Nyla Kuhlman, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much to Dr. Nyla Kuhlman for taking time out of her schedule to talk to me. If you are near Montreal and listening to this before April 7th, 2022, why not check out the Peace of Mind presentation that is going to be happening? We'll have links to that performance on our website. Friends, we've come to the end of another episode of the Science Night podcast. But as always, there are more things happening on the horizon. So if you want to follow me, my name is James Reed, and you can go to my Twitter at James underscore Reed 
three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshippin. And Jorgen, where can everybody find you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. If you want to follow the Science Night podcast, we are at Science Night and the number one. And also, you should check out all the other podcasts that are happening on the River Power Podcast Mill. The Mill is churning out great content left and right. Just this past week, you could turn in, tune into the Stone Soup Podcast and hear me and Steffi talk about her secret life as a dog agility trainer. And you can also hear me and Steffi on a new episode of Pulp from Beyond the Veil. All of that information can be found on the River Power podcast at riverpower.xyz and wherever you download fine podcasts. That is going to do it for another episode of the Science Night podcast. Be sure to check out our website, scinight.com, where you can find old episodes, links to our merch, and all kinds of other stuff. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T dot com. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode, and until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. I am so sorry for what just happened. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be quiet for a second. <laughs> <laughs> We've broken everybody. Well, while Stefan while uh Stefano is catching her breath here. <laughs> Maybe Jamie, you have something to say?